Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your seats. Uh, good morning. Welcome. And uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles out. You can start making your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to begin our time by asking an obvious question. And the intention is to get our minds thinking uh, so we can start moving to the place that God's Word is going to move us this morning. Uh, but have you ever found yourself uh, having to work, uh, struggling, maybe having to, t- to strive to forgive someone else? Right? Ever been there? Uh, okay, you're lying if you're not saying, yeah, I've been there. Right? All of us have wrestled with this in some capacity and in some manner, right? Some wrong that has been done to us, and we have struggled to release the offender from the wrong that they've done to us. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a close friend, a particularly bitter form of betrayal. We all know, we all know the difficulty of having to offend someone, or sorry, to forgive someone who has wronged us. We also know what it is to offend somebody as well, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, And the text that we come to this morning is going to press us in the area of forgiveness, but it's not just that we forgive. The press of forgiveness in 2 Corinthians is also intended to allow us to proclaim Christ's forgiveness to others. In fact, here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning, this idea right here, that the gospel empowers us to forgive and to proclaim Christ's forgiveness. So the gospel is going to empower you and I not only to forgive, but also to proclaim the forgiveness of Christ. So with that, let me have you look at your Bibles. I'm going to begin in verse 5 of chapter 2. I would encourage you to follow along. In fact, why don't you stand? I'm going to have you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 17. Loved ones, this is the Word of the Lord, and it says this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It was sufficient for these things. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you take your seat, and we're going to pray. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. 
God, we're thankful for the variety of ways that your word will do your work. Uh, God, in these next few moments as we deal with what can often be a really difficult subject like forgiveness, uh, as we deal with uh, our responsibility to proclaim the gospel, God, we pray that we would not be defensive, uh, but God, instead that we would receive what your word has for us, um, and God, that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in your people. Uh, God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning, praying for Center City Church, uh, and God, for Spencer Brown. I'm so thankful for that brother and for that body of believers. We pray, God, that you'd be moving and working in them uh, in the same way that we desire, that you'd be moving and working in us. And so come now, have your way to accomplish your purposes. We pray this in the name that is above all other names, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Proclaiming Forgiveness proclaiming forgiveness, and again, this idea that the gospel empowers us to forgive and to proclaim Christ's forgiveness. And so when we look at this passage, uh, really two uh, elements that that at first would seem uh, disconnected or unrelated, and yet they're very much related to one another, and they center around uh, our willingness and our ability uh, through the power of Christ to forgive those who have wronged us, uh, and then how that enables us to proclaim the gospel or the forgiveness of of Christ. So with that, let's begin with this idea, looking at verses 5 through 11, that we are empowered by Christ to forgive others. We are empowered by Christ to forgive others. And so Paul begins this portion of the book, and he's talking about one who has pained him. Now, we don't know for sure, although most likely, uh, this is, is uh, almost assuredly the individual back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had an inappropriate uh, sexual relationship with his mother-in-law, creepy, weird, gross, sinful, all of that. Uh, but we don't know for sure, although that's most likely who it is. Um, and so if you remember, <clears throat> if you remember in that setting, Paul had to continually exhort the church to discipline this man and his sin. And so now they finally disciplined him, and now that he has repented of his sin, they are uh, slow to forgive and to restore him back to the fellowship. And you could almost see Paul, it's almost like he's like, oh, guys, seriously, like you wouldn't discipline him, and now you won't forgive and restore him? There's almost this come on sense to what's going on. And his appeal is for the church to forgive this individual. Now, before we go any further, let's just talk about forgiveness for a moment. Let's make sure that we're thinking about it biblically, uh, not just in a humanistic or worldly sense. So the word forgive, when you see that word forgive, so often in the Bible, that word forgiveness, um, when it is most often employed, it's actually a financial or accounting term. It's this notion of releasing someone from a debt. Uh, And so when you think about it in a relational sense, it's releasing someone from the debt that they owed you when they wronged you. Uh, Maybe another way of thinking about this is that when someone wrongs you, you essentially have them on your hook. And so what you are saying in forgiveness is, I'm going to take you off of my hook, and I'm going to put you on God's hook. And in that action, you are entrusting God to be the one to bring about vindication and justice. You are no longer enacting to do that on your own. You're saying, I'm going to trust the Lord to be the one to bring this about, right? That is what happens when we talk about forgiveness. That's what is in view. And Paul is telling this church that we are empowered by Christ to forgive those who have wronged us. He's saying it's a release on our part. And so notice he he makes three distinctive points with respect to this in verses 5 through 11. Here's the first. Make note of this, that we know sin always impacts others. 
We know that sin, and maybe let's personalize this, we know that our sin always impacts others. So Paul says in verse 5, he says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me. Paul's not saying, no, I wasn't hurt. He's saying, he's caused it not only to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, now, now notice what Paul's doing in this moment. It's almost like he's escalating or intensifying what's going on. He's like, it's not just to me. All of you were impacted by the sin of this individual. So church, listen, listen, hear this. There's never a time, there's never a time where your sin does not negatively impact those around you. Did you hear that? There's not ever a time where that won't be the case. Sin has this cascading or rippling effect of how it plays out in our life. So imagine that you're on the shore of a lake, right? You see this peaceful, calm, serene lake, and then I want you to imagine you take a big old rock and throw it out into the lake. What happens? Right? When that rock hits the water... Right, it ripples out from that point. See, at that epicenter, right, that, that, that is what sin does. Those ripples represent the way that sin plays out in our lives. There's never a time where our sin does not negatively impact the people around us. Right? And this is not the first time the Bible has taught us this. We see this all over the place. Probably best illustrated back in Joshua chapter 7. Right, do you remember that? Right after the people of Israel, they go in, they conquer uh, the major city of Jericho, uh, and then they go up to Ai, and they get absolutely destroyed in battle. Why? It was because of the sin of Achan. And, and, and the point in all of that, and what Paul's saying here, is that the sin of one individual negatively impacted the entire community. And that's what had happened at Corinth. This is actually a really helpful word for us, because in our hyper-individualistic mindset. We can wrongly believe, we can wrongly be deluded into thinking that I can compartmentalize my sin in a manner or a way that it doesn't negatively impact the people around me, which is just flat out wrong. It's wrong. So, so think of it like this. Let's just say for a moment, you tell a tiny lie, just a, a white lie. Let's just watch how this begins to ripple out. First of all, you know and the person that you lie to has now been misled or deceived in how they're proceeding. Even if they never find out that you lied, right, there's a couple people who have been affected. Now, if they do find out, right, you see how the ripples begin to intensify. Further, if other people know that you lied, they don't look at you the same, right? They're, they're going to question and wonder whether or not you're always telling the truth to them. And so this small thing, it's seemingly small, and yet it ripples and escalates. Any sin of ours... It's going to negatively impact others. It's, it's inescapable. And so I think it's, it's worth asking, right, how, how, is, how is my sin negatively impacted those around me? Am, am I being deluded into thinking that my sin is somehow inconsequential? Do I realize the entire community is impacted by my sin? And church, I'm drilling down on this because, we, first of all, we have to come to grips with what the Bible is teaching us. But, but to see how our sin and, and how it impacts those around us, because it's going to launch us into the rest of this text. And further, as it launches us into the rest of this text, when you begin to recognize, oh man, here's all the ways that my sin has negatively impacted others, it is hopefully going to make us more apt to forgive others in the ways that they've wronged us. We know our sin always impacts others, so notice where Paul moves with this. 
starting in verse 6, he says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Here's what Paul's saying in this moment. He's saying that we choose to forgive the offender. That we choose to forgive the offender. The plea here is to forgive the brother who's in sin. And the irony in this is that Paul had to press them to first issue forgiveness. um, And then when they find, or sorry, discipline, when they finally discipline this man, now he's having to press them into restoring uh, and welcoming him back in. He's saying, guys, it's time to forgive. It's time to comfort. We don't want him to be overwhelmed by this excessive sorrow. Here's the point that Paul's making in the text. Here it is. Don't miss this. Love one, the ideal response to the one who has hurt you, the ideal response to the one who has wronged you is to forgive them. That's the point that Paul's making right here. He's saying that that's the way that you and I are to respond to hurts and wrongs and slights and mistreatments is to forgive. And in fact, there's, there's two elements that, that are implied here uh, in what Paul is, is getting at in verses 6 to 8. Here's the first is that we must be willing to address sin, that, that, that we can't ignore it. Okay, but he, here's the question as we think about this. What is the purpose? What is the goal in addressing sin? What, what, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 5, if you go to the famous church discipline passage in Matthew 18, the goal is always for there to be restoration and reconciliation, right? Jesus says that the goal is to win your brother, right? That that when they respond, hopefully with repentance, that that, that we are quick, right, to, to forgive. In fact, inherent in anyone going to someone to confront sin in another should be a readiness, an eagerness, a desire for restoration. In fact, listen, listen to me, church. If you are going to confront sin in another and you are not ready, if not desirous, to forgive and restore, you are not ready to have that conversation. You're not ready to have the conversation if you're not ready for them to repent and for you to forgive them in that moment. We must be willing to address sin. And here's the second implication. We've already begun to talk about this, but we must be willing to forgive. Right? This is the goal of, of any confrontation. Right? Any addressing of sin is, is a willingness to forgive. We're going to release them from that debt. Now, let, me, let me pause here for a moment because I understand Right, the, the, the spectrum of forgiveness can be quite broad, can it not? Right, there's like minor slights and there's life-altering wrongs. So let me just reiterate where we started. Forgiveness is releasing someone from the debt that they owed you when they wronged you. Right, forgiveness in taking them off of your hook. You are entrusting that individual to the Lord and the Lord will bring vindication and justice. You're saying, God, I'm going to let you do this. But here's what you have to understand. In, in that process, it does not circumvent God's justice. It does not undermine God's righteousness. It's not sweeping away any sin in that. You're just allowing the Lord to deal with it instead of you having to deal with it. And to that end, I'm going to make a, a document available to you. So there's a number of these in the lobby. Uh, They're on the door or on the table, right between the two doors as you walk out. So it's this little booklet, and there's a few different aspects to this. 
Um, in fact, a number of you have probably already seen this because I give this out like it's candy because this is a fantastic document, but it's called How to Forgive Again. And there's a few parts to this. So they've got this acrostic of forgive that's helpful to work through the process. On the backside, uh, how do you truly forgive? This is where this hook language that I'm using uh, has come from. But in the inside, there's this long list of here's what forgiveness is, here's what forgiveness is not. Let me just give you a sampling. Forgiveness is dismissing a debt. Forgiveness is dismissing your demand that others owe you something. Forgiveness is extended even if it is never, ever earned. Forgiveness is extended regardless of a lack of repentance, right? It just frames all these different aspects around forgiveness. But then it also tells us what forgiveness is not. It's not circumventing God's justice. It's not waiting for time to heal all wounds. It's not letting the guilty off the hook. It's not the same as reconciliation. It's not stuffing your anger, and on and on it goes. And it's a fantastic resource. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, I know the perfect person to give this to, okay? <laughs> now, let, let me just give you a little insight into our week here at the church. So I, I, I gave this document to Val, and uh, Val, Val, this is what Val told me. I said, hey, can we print a number of these off to make it available? And so a few minutes later, I walked back through, and Val, man, I love Val, right? Just honest. She goes, man, when I saw this, I thought this would be really good for the church. And then I started reading it and realized, oh, man, this is really good for me. I need this. Right? And it'd be easy to go, oh, I know who I want to give this to. No, you need it. That's who needs this. Right? This forgiveness. Right? We choose to forgive the offender. And if you're like Mike, but you don't understand how egregious, how horrible, how wrong. Okay, okay. Let me then just have you consider Christ. Let me have you consider Christ. Because no one, to include yourself, no one has been more egregiously wronged than Christ has, and here it is, by you and I. Your sin, your defiance, your rebellion against Almighty God is the most egregious offense that exists. I mean, just think about this. Almighty God creates you and I out of the dirt, we're creatures of the dirt. He gives us every conceivable blessing, including himself. And each and every one of us responds the same way that Adam and Eve have responded, with defiance and rebellion and rejection. Right? Romans 3 sums it up, does it not? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what should come to us, what we deserve is God's wrath and God's judgment. That is what should come the moment that we defy God. A holy God defied by a sinful people. And yet, what's God's response to our violation? What's God's response to our sin? God doesn't consume us in his wrath. God sends his son Jesus, and God places the wrath that we deserve on him so that we can be forgiven and restored. That's stunning. No one has been more wronged than Jesus or God by us, and no one is quicker to forgive than God is to us. Choose to forgive the offender. Now, let me talk to each group of people in the room here for just a moment. First of all, if you are here and you're not a believer, 
You're not a follower of Jesus. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you would choose to join us on a Sunday morning. Here, you, you have to grasp the depth and the magnitude of God's grace in his forgiveness. That every act of your defiance, every act of your rebellion is covered and atoned by the blood of Jesus when you trust in him. Oh, that you would receive him. And for you believers, the reality, oh man, the reality of Jesus' forgiveness to you should melt any callousness that you have toward anyone who has wronged you. Right? To see our sin for what it is, and yet to receive not the judgment and wrath of God, and yet to live under the infinite waterfall of God's grace. Oh, how could we not respond in kind? Let us be willing, let us be eager, let us be desirous, desirous to forgive. Right? We choose to forgive the offender. Let me say one other note on this. When it comes to forgiveness, it's really a caution. Loved one, be very careful, be very, very careful that you don't expect more from someone else than Christ expects from you. That's an inversion of the gospel. Don't expect more from someone else than Christ would ever expect from you. We choose to forgive the offender. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 9 through 11. That we choose to forgive for the benefit of community. We choose to forgive for the benefit of community. So he says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, uh, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, right? So, so Paul, don't miss this, Paul, who was the most aggrieved of anyone in this situation, has chosen forgiveness, and, and now he's exhorting the community to do the same, right? And, and he gives us two specific aspects of this. First of all, in verse 9 and 10, that we forgive out of obedience to Christ. So he says in verse 9, here, here, here's why I wrote you. I wanted you to see if you'd be obedient. And then he says in verse 10, I, I did this for your sake in the presence of Christ, See, to choose not to forgive is actually inconsistent with who our Savior is and how he's responded to us. As you think about that, consider um, Jesus commands forgiveness. Rob read from Ephesians 4, right? As you've been forgiven, forgive. You see an almost uh, identical admonition in Colossians 3. Think about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Anyone who forgives will be forgiven by my Father. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven by my Father. That should terrify you when you read that. But they're not options. Right? At no point is Jesus like, you know, this might be a best practice. It'd be a good idea. Hey, you know, if you feel like it, you should go for it. No, no. He says, this is what you are to do. Part of an obedience to Christ. Lo loved one, you want to be obedient to Christ? If you want to be obedient to Christ, he's saying you got to forgive others. That's a hard word. That's what he's saying. And the reason, one of the reasons for that is so crucial because look at what he says in verse 11. And notice that, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for not ignorant of his designs. Right? We forgive to combat the schemes of Satan. When you choose not to forgive, you play right into the devil's hands. That's what Paul's saying. Like you're actually playing the game for Satan. You're doing the very thing that, 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 that he wants. And so we have to be honest about the reality that there's a spiritual dimension that is at play in our lives at all times. And, and as Western intellectuals, so, so sometimes we have a tendency to downplay this to our detriment. 
But don't, don't miss what's at stake, right? S- Satan desires our destruction, and he doesn't care how it comes about. If you fail to forgive, uh, if, you, if you live in resentment and bitterness, um, if, uh, if you um, didn't care, doesn't matter. See, when we reject forgiveness, we fall right into his trap. So I don't know if you've had this experience. I know we've had to do this a few times where you have like large critters that live in your yard and they're killing things. So we had a squirrel. I don't know if it was last year, two years ago, that was killing a bunch of stuff. So you get like those bigger traps, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those like rodent traps and you set it up and you put bait in it, right? And the idea is that it's going to draw the animal in. And then when you catch that animal, what do you do? You release it in someone's yard that you don't like. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't do that. That would actually be evidence that you haven't forgiven them. That's what that would be, right? You you deal with the animal. But, But when you trap that animal... They're stuck, and they are at your mercy to do with them whatever you want. This is what unforgiveness does in our life. You're caged. You're caged when unforgiveness rules you, right? Unforgiveness will allure you with a bait, but it's only going to shackle and imprison you in your life. And so we choose forgiveness to combat the schemes of the enemy, right? In the gospel, we're empowered to forgive others. Let us be people who, by God's grace, live free of bitterness and resentment because we've chosen to forgive. This, this is the far better way. And then notice what it leads us to in verses 12 to 17. See, when we live in forgiveness, it enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's forgiveness to others, right? We proclaim the gospel of Christ to others. This is what forgiveness frees us to do. Now I'm free to share the gospel. I'm free to share how Christ has forgiven me. In fact, we see this play out in a few ways. Look at verse 12 and 13. Here's the first thing we see, that we're committed to the gospel and one another. We're committed to the gospel and one another. So look at your Bibles. Here's what it says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So here's the scenario. Paul finds himself in Troas, and he's preaching the gospel, and he uses this phrase here, uh, the door was open for me, which, which really is, is probably um, a, a phrase implying very fruitful ministry. Like, it's going really well for me here. And yet, even in spite of the ministry's success, he's like, man, my, my spirit wasn't at rest. Why? Because he didn't know what was going on with Titus. And so the concern for Titus has him actually leave that fruitful ministry to ensure that his brother is okay. And so here's what we find in this tension. Here's the point I think Paul's making. That gospel proclamation is important, and so is care and discipleship of one another. That he's holding them in this healthy tension. That we need both. Uh, and, And this is a helpful word for us because as people, we tend to gravitate, we have a tendency to gravitate to one of the two poles. Right? We either really emphasize um, gospel proclamation or we really emphasize uh, like discipleship and shepherding and things of that nature. So here's my question. <clears throat> Which of these two is more important? Which one's necessary? Anyone want to be bold and, and tell me? Both. I was going to go with yes. Okay, both is also uh, acceptable. But, but we do this thing where we will place them as like competing options. They're not, they're not competing options. They actually work together in conjunction. And so as a community of believers, we, we need a commitment to sharing the gospel, 
And we need an equal commitment to caring for people. It's not, I'm only going to proclaim. And it's not, I'm only going to care. It has to be a both and. And when we do that, they'll actually feed and work together. So, so here, watch, right? My, my commit, commitment to the gospel, it's going to inform and influence how I care for people. Right? Because I value the gospel, the gospel is going to point me to a deeper care for the people in my life. And as I care for others, <clears throat> it's going to open opportunities for the gospel to be shared. It's, it's kind of like this uh, revolving door or this circle that just keeps on repeating. In fact, I've heard multiple stories from you <clears throat> where you share this very thing. You're like, man, I've got this friend or this neighbor or this coworker, right? And you've demonstrated this concern or care for them. And then something's going on in their life, and they've recognized that you care for them. And so they begin to share those struggles or those issues with you, which then leads you to share the gospel for them, right? Which this revolving door, and it keeps going over and over again. And it's this beautiful thing when it works the way that it's intended to work. Now, in saying that and evaluating us as a church, I feel like I need to be pastoral here for a moment. So let me, let me attempt to be direct. You're like, are you ever anything else? I don't know, but I'm going to be direct on this. When it comes to this, church, we're imbalanced. We're lopsided. Here's how. Faith Church, you are so good at caring for people. You're, you're, you're incredible. You absolutely excel at caring for people. More than any church that I've ever been a part of where people are cared for well in this congregation and even those outside the congregation. Here's where we need to be pressed, is to be more deliberate, more purposeful, more courageous with respect to our gospel sharing. See, in our setting, our love for one another, and maybe just even our love for people in general, is outpacing our gospel proclamation. So, so we, we just want to lean into this. We want to press further into the other side. And so as you think about this, okay, well, what, what, what might that look like in my life? Well, maybe you need to be more deliberate with non-believers. That there needs to be more time, uh, more effort, more priority that's given to your schedule to make sure that you're around non-believers. Maybe you need to be more deliberate when you're with non-believers. More deliberate about what you talk about, what you engage on. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's just time to put your fear of man to death. Like, I'm done caring what other people think. A gospel proclamation and a care for each other, they're going to feed each other. Doing the care part really well, and it's time to press in further on the proclamation. And if you're like, I, I, I hear that, but I just, I just wrestle with my ability or fear or whatever. Well, Paul knew that. That's why he gave us verse 14. Look at what he goes on to say. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in, and you might want to circle or underline these next two words, triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So here's this second aspect of gospel proclamation that we see. Uh, just make note of this in verse 14. We are dead to self so we can live for God's purposes. Now, you might be looking back at verse 14 going, I don't see anything about being dead to self. No, it's there. It's just not explicit. Let me try to explain. So that phrase, triumphal procession, like that, that's going to inform the rest of the passage that we're looking at today. Here's what that was. Um, in, in the Roman world, this was a procession, this caravan or parade 
that would usually come at the end of various military battles. And this parade would include a number of different individuals. It would uh, include the victorious general uh, and leaders. It would include the victorious army. It would include those who had been captured, uh, from maybe who were, who were Romans, who have now been freed. It would also include those who were fighting against the Romans, who are now captured or conquered by them. There would be these, these uh, incense bearers who would go. And all this pomp and all this theater that would come into the city, this parade that would celebrate this victory. But one of the things that's interesting is outside of you know, most of it was comprised of those who belonged to the Roman Empire, but the one group that I mentioned were also those who were conquered. And what's interesting about the conquered people is at the end of the procession, whether it was a representative group of them or the entirety of that group, they were actually executed at the end of the procession. And so here's, here's the question that we have to ask ourselves, right? We, we, we have the conquered and the conquering. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves, and how we answer this question will will wildly influence how we think about uh, these next few verses. But the question is this, how would Paul have seen himself with respect to that procession? Would he have been the conquering general? Would he have been part of the conquering army? Would he have been an incense bearer? Would he have been one of those who had been conquered by the one who was victorious? Now, now I'll I'll tell you that there's a variety of, of opinions on this. Okay, so, so you might land in a different place than me. That's fine. Um, uh, some people want to say that Paul sees himself as being victorious. Some are saying, you know, when you look at verses 15 through 17, all the aroma, that he sees himself as an incense bearer. And I think you can make legitimate arguments for them, but I don't think they're the strongest argument. Here's what I think Paul's saying. I think Paul views himself as one of the people who's been conquered. And I say that for a few reasons. One is that perspective is what is most resonant of what we find over the course of 2 Corinthians. Right? The, suf- the, the theme of suffering and death shows up over and over and over again in this book. We saw it in chapter 1, we'll see it in 4, we'll see it in 11, we'll see it in 12. Not to mention it's consistent with all of Paul's writings. Paul's not the only one who advocates for this. Jesus also advocated for this. Right? Jesus' call to us was to come and what? Die. But to take up your cross and follow me. You, you recognize the cross as an instrument of death, right? It's a symbol of death. And so I'll readily admit it could be a different interpretation. I'm inclined to see Paul viewing himself as one of the ones who's conquered. And there'll be a couple other things that come out a little later that I think will speak to this. And that's how I'm going to run with it. And the point that I think Paul's making is this. That suffering and death is one of the means God uses to make or uses in his people to make himself known. Which, by the way, is entirely consistent with the entire New Testament. You ever heard the phrase, dead man walking? Familiar with that phrase? Right? And and typically used of prisoners whose execution is imminent. But it's this idea that, that death is certain. Right? Dead man walking. Now, here's what you have to understand. In coming to Christ... If you came to Christ at any point in your life, you inherently had to die to yourself. And so, loved ones, at some level, we're all dead men or dead women walking. And when that's true of you, when you know death is imminent, well, then you you can be all in. You can be all in on whoever your master is. And I think that's what Paul's press is and why we can preach the gospel regardless of what comes with it 
because we're simply dead men and dead women walking. And so Paul says two things here with respect to this. First of all, he says that God leads us. Right? But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now in that, right, the triumphal procession, both the conquering and the conquered are being led in. And make no mistake, in this illustration, Jesus is unequivocally the victorious ruler. Okay, He's the one who's triumphant. His resurrection gives us the greatest hope that we could ever um, hope for. Right? God has won. God will continue to win. And in spite of our temporal dying, victory is our destination. We don't want to lose that. We want to hold that. But look at what he says secondly. He says, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. There's this notion of spreading, right? That the people of God are spread so that the knowledge of God goes forward. And I think this is where the Bible helps to interpret the Bible. Because in the book of Acts, there's a profound spreading or scattering that happens. And it's almost exclusively driven by persecution. And I think that's part of what Paul has in mind. And, and here's what's fascinating. Don't, don't miss the connection. Right? The guy who wrote 2 Corinthians was primarily responsible for scattering believers all over the place back in Acts chapter 8. Right? It was the persecution through Paul that scattered believers out of, out of Jerusalem. And then what happened in Acts 9? This same Paul was conquered by Jesus. And that's why my perception of the procession is not him or us as the victorious soldier, but as one who's yielded to God in all things. We've been conquered by God. So here's the question you've got to ask yourself. Do you recognize, do you recognize our victory comes in the end, not in the immediate? And do we live accordingly? Right? Further, are you living as one who is dead to self and one who is alive to the purposes of God? Now, let me have us walk back to, to, to sharing the gospel and fear a man here for just a moment. See, if I'm alive to self, then the approval of man is wildly significant and important to me. If I am dead to self, and then I'm alive to Christ, I don't really care what people think about me. I just care what Christ thinks about me. See, that's the freedom in this. And so let us properly understand our position so that we can properly serve the Lord. We're dead to self so we can live for God's purposes, which leads into this final thing that we see in verses 15 to 17, that we're the aroma of Christ to the world, that we're the aroma of Christ to the world. And again, this likely has that procession in view as well, the, the incense bearers, and you can see them having whatever means it was that they're burning their incense as a part of this caravan or parade making its way uh, into the city. And as they would pass, the smoke uh, and the smell of their incense would permeate the air. And who would smell that? Everyone would smell that. Because scents and smells and aromas are not a respecter of space. If you are in a vicinity of a skunk... You're going to smell it, are you not? It's not like, ooh, this person won't like it. I won't let my scent waft into their air. No, that's not how it works, right? You, you, you can't escape it. And so the procession would have been no different. Those who were watching, those who were part of the procession, they all would have smelt the incense, which I think is why Paul is pressing this the way that he is. 
Right? The, the, the image conveys gospel proclamation and how the aroma of Christ is understood and responded to. Because look at what he says in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He's saying they're all smelling the aroma of the incense. But it has a wildly different implication depending on where you find yourself. Right? For those who have been conquered, that aroma is the smell of their impending death. For those who are victorious, it's an aroma of their life and freedom. But this entire image centers around us sharing the gospel. The Bible tells us in a variety of places that there's going to be a varied response to the gospel. So, so you just make note of this. We're not going to go there. Acts 17, 32 to 34. Also in Acts 28, great place. Uh, where we see the response of the gospel. Here it is in summary. Paul preaches, and we're told that some mocked, some said we'll hear more, and some believed. That is the response to the gospel. Some are going to reject it, some are going to be on the fence, and then ultimately they're either going to reject it or they're going to believe it. That's it. The Puritans had this great quote where they used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The point being this, there's a single source, there's just varied responses. It's the same dynamic that Paul's saying here. It's, it's, it's one gospel, it's one aroma, but it produces a variety of results. Here they are. First of all, this, the judgment of God to non-believers. The judgment of God to non-believers. See, to, 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 to a non-believer, right? every person, every person is going to consciously choose to either trust Christ and to yield to him or you're going to reject him and live apart from him. Period. Now for those who defy, for those who reject God, the aroma of Christ is a smell of impending death. It's a smell of impending judgment. Right? Because of their de- decision of defiance, it's not the sweet scent of life. It's the fragrance of death. Because listen, listen, defiance of God will always produce death. And so again, to those of you who are non-believers, I would, I would implore you, implore you that you would turn from sin and that you would trust in Jesus. The alternative is death and alienation from Christ. See, to, to not do so is akin to clinging to the stench of a skunk or a sewer when the scent of honey and apple blossoms and ocean breezes are available to you. Part of this is, this is the judgment of God to those who defy, who reject, and ultimately do not believe. Now, the other side of this, this is the grace of God to believers. To the believer, this is the the fragrance of life. So he says in verse 16, to one a fragrance from death to death, that's non-believer. To the other a fragrance from life to life, that's for the believer. That there's nothing richer, nothing sweeter, nothing more glorious than the smell of gospel to the nose of a believer. So what for many of you is a cup of coffee in the morning, right? You're like, I love it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't like coffee. I don't even like the smell of coffee. All right. But for most of you, right? You're like, okay, so here, okay, for what coffee is for most of you, what bacon is for all of us, right? <laughs> is the scent of the gospel. It's glorious. And so let me just encourage you to revel and to steep yourself in the riches and the glories of what are ours in Christ. 
But there's one other thing that Paul gets at here at the end of this, right? And this is where it all comes full circle. He, he poses this question at the end of verse 16. He says, who's sufficient for these things? Again, this is all under the umbrella of gospel proclamation. He, he's going to answer that question in chapter 3. We'll see it next week. He's going to say, God's sufficient, we're not. That's, that's the short answer. But then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about, hey, we're not peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, we're the mouthpiece of the gospel. Church, we're, we're, we're the mouthpiece of the gospel. And Paul's not suggesting, hey, as long as you kind of smell Christian-y, then that's all good. No, no, he's saying, no, we're, we're supposed to smell like Jesus, but we're supposed to get the word out. And so he says, in contrast to those who are peddlers of God's word. Actually, I loved how Pastor Neil said it in our Tuesday meeting. He said they're traffickers of God's word. We are those who spread the fragrance of Christ by proclaiming the gospel. And who's sufficient for these things? Well, God is sufficient. You and I are not sufficient. God is sufficient. Again, we'll see that next week. But, but here's the freedom in this. The sufficiency isn't in our cleverness. It's not in our intellect. It's not in our persuasiveness. It's not in our charisma. It's in us being dead to, to ourself and alive in Christ. But don't miss. There's a compulsion in this. And the compulsion is that you and I share the gospel. It's not optional. We're the mouthpiece that makes known the good news of Jesus. And if we will lit it, this is, this is actually really liberating because we're, we're guarded on the one hand from thinking that evangelism is too hard, it's too difficult, it's too demanding, I can't do it, I'm not qualified, but we're also freed on the other side of thinking it all rises and falls with me. It's like, no, it's going to rise and fall with the Lord. I, I, I just need to declare. In fact, if you want to think of it like anything, think of it like this. When it comes to sharing the gospel, start thinking about your mailman or your mailwoman. What do those people do every day? They deliver the mail. Do you know what they don't do? They don't stick around to figure out whether or not you like or don't like what you got in the mail. You ever notice that? Like never in my life has the mailman been like, what's he going to think? Is he, he going to like this? They just deliver the mail. And they're, they're, not, they're not one bit bothered by whether or not I'm excited or frustrated or angry or sad at whatever news I get. And you know what happens the next day? They deliver it again. And they're going to show up the next day. They're going to deliver it again, entirely undeterred as to whether or not I like what I get in the mail. Loved ones, this is what you and I are to do with the gospel. It's time to deliver the mail and keep delivering the mail and not be deterred as to whether or not people like it, don't like it, receive it, don't receive it. That, that's not our prerogative. Our responsibility is to deliver the mail. So let's be people who deliver the mail. The gospel empowers us to forgive and to proclaim Christ's forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for your great kindness and care to us. God, we're thankful for your forgiveness. God, how you have perfectly, completely, fully forgiven us of all sin so that we can be reconciled and restored to you. God, we ask and pray that you would help us to forgive those who have wronged us, God, to release, to, to imitate, to model the gospel in the, in the way that you have done this for us. And God, not simply for the sake and the blessing of forgiveness, but Father, to enable us to proclaim, to make known, to share 
with those around us. Father, help us where we wrestle and struggle to forgive. God, help us where we uh, struggle and maybe have fear or anxiety around sharing the gospel. God, we thank you that you enable us to forgive and God, that you enable us to proclaim and we ask that you would help us to do both. We pray all this in your name, amen.